Well, it is uh, good to be back with you. I have missed being with you over the last few weeks, and I'm so grateful that uh, you allow me to take uh, some time in the summer for studying and resting and um, spending more time with God, which, as wild as it sounds, being in ministry, working for a church, sometimes doesn't just lend itself to that, even though we only work one day a week, and it's like, what else are we going to... Uh, last Sunday, I was able to be with our good friends at Grace Lake Highlands, a part of our family of churches. And I got to tell you, uh, it was one of the most engaged, active listening, amen shouting, enthusiastic congregations I have ever preached to. Almost as fun as it is to preach right here in this sanctuary to you. All right, so the title of the sermon today is Move Up, Kneel Down obviously is kind of tailored for this Move Up Sunday, as Sterling introduced for us. So here's really the heart of what we're going to see today. In Jesus, to move up is to kneel down. The God who came to us in Jesus, he moves up by kneeling down, humbling himself to serve. And we're invited today into one of the most powerful and clearest places in the New Testament where we see how this is grafted into the heart of our God. Philippians chapter 2. Now before we get into this text, uh, sometimes when it's a sermon, sometimes we just dive right in, we start reading it. This is going to be those, one of those Sundays where we're going to have to build up to it because we need some background context. And this is going to be the part of the message that might feel the most like going back to school. So if, you know, you are dreading the start of school, teachers, students, administrators, most of the parents in the room, let's be honest, we're pretty excited and fired up about school starting back up. But this will be the most lecture-esque part of the sermon. So stay with me. I think it's going to be worth it. And I'm grateful to my pastor in college who really helped to open up first for me the historical background to Philippians 2. About 2,500 years ago, there was a king named Philip of Macedon. And during his reign, there was a big discovery of gold in his kingdom, which because he was king and because being a king is often something used to their own advantage, Philip of Macedon basically had all this gold mined for himself. Now to do that, he had to force all these people into slavery under harsh conditions. Many of them died in the mines, but he got all the gold. Now to protect all of this gold, he built this little no-name town up and he put a garrison around it. And he named the town Philippi. Now, why do you think Philip of Macedon would name the city Philippi? That's one of the perks of being a king. Well, eventually Philip was assassinated and his son took over, a name that you probably recognize, Alexander the Great. And Alexander used all that money that his dad had piled up to fund his armies and the expansion of his kingdom into the known world. But then Alexander dies at the, year, at the age of 32, and when he died, his, this vast kingdom pretty much began to fall apart. So the city of Philippi kind of falls off the radar of history for a while. But then it comes back again as the place where Caesar Augustus battled these two guys named Cassius and Brutus. Is this ringing a bell for anybody? Humanities 101. Well, Augustus defeats them at the Battle of Philippi. Historians point to this battle as really the dividing line between the, the Roman Republic, which lifted up and extolled the ideals of democracy, and then the Roman Empire, where one man, the Caesar, the emperor, would rule over all. 
Now, the Battle of Philippi was also seen as the beginning of the era of emperor worship, of honoring Caesar as a god. In fact, uh, there's, a, there's an inscription that goes back to the year 9 BC. So this is before Jesus. And it's about Caesar Augustus. And I want you to see this. It says, Augustus is a savior for us and those who come after us. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the world of glad tidings. Any of that language sound familiar to you? Savior, whose birthday was glad tidings, which by the way is the Greek word euangelion, also known as the word for, the word for gospel. Glad tidings, good news, gospel. This was a Roman word long before it was a church word. The gospel in Rome was the good news that Caesar reigns as Lord. And throughout the empire, people would honor Caesar by saying these two words, Kyrios Kaiser. Kyrios, it's the word for Lord. And then Kaiser, of course, it's a kind of hamburger bun. <laughs> just making sure y'all were listening. At 9.30 was just, they were glossed over by this point. Kurios Kaiser, Caesar is Lord. And you were required to say these words and to kneel before the emperor as a pledge of your allegiance to him. So the city of Philippi, you understand, was the place where Caesar Augustus became Lord. And because of this, there was even a little time when the name of Philippi, the town, was changed. And the new name chosen by the emperor Augustus was Colonia Augusta. Now, where do you think that name came from? That's one of the perks of being king. So that's the history of Philippi. But before we look at this text, we need to understand a little bit more about the culture. And part of this has to do with geography, with where Philippi is located. So I'm going to show you a map that is probably worthless because you can't see where Philippi is. It's up on the far left-hand upper corner. It's actually in a different country called Macedonia. And so what I want you to understand is Philippi is more on the frontier. It's on the fringes of the Roman Empire. And because they were further from the center, further from the heart of Rome, the key stakeholders in Philippi had a responsibility to preserve and, and, and reinforce the Roman way of life. Like, they were all the way off in another country, and so they had to double down on Roman cultural norms. Does that make any sense? Not really. Okay. Earlier this week, I was going through this sermon, and I'm really glad I had to with some of our elders, and one of them said, this is a little bit like the British colonies used to be, where they would take British customs and they would almost go even more extreme with them because they were so far away from the homeland, but they wanted to preserve and spread and dig roots into this British way of life. The same was true of Philippi. Like, they went all in on Roman culture. Now, we've talked about this before, that the foundation of this Roman culture was really built on one word, and it's the word honor. Everybody's after honor, reputation, renown, acclaim, status. It was a vertical society where the goal of life was to achieve and go as high up, to get as much honor, to be ex as high and exalted was the language they used, to be as exalted as possible. And we get this in part. Because every culture tends to have like a social ladder. Anybody who's ever been to middle school knows that this exists. 
But in Philippi and in the Roman world, it was a whole new level. And where you were located on this ladder of honor pretty much dictated everything about your life. So let me give you a, a few, a quick rundown of this ladder. At the very top of the ladder, the most exalted over everyone else were the senators. The senators were the oldest Roman families. Their wealth was built on land and agriculture. Now, in order to be a, a senator, the main thing was you had to be born into it, right? Rare instances of somebody making their way up into that highest level of honor. Mostly you were born into it. Now, below the senators, right below them, you had the equestrians. And they made their fortunes in areas like banking and entrepreneurs. These were the business leaders. By the way, what do you think the equestrians were known for in terms of transportation? Horses. That was one way that you could spot an equestrian. Can you imagine a culture where people were identified by what they drive? <laughs> These people are crazy. Now, between the senators and the equestrians, you've got basically the 0.1%. And they were the envy of everyone else in the Roman world. But it's kind of funny, if you read through the history, the senators and the equestrians were always going after each other. The senators didn't like the equestrians because they were the new money, right? And the equestrians, they, they thought the senators were so full of themselves and this old money versus new money, great Gatsby thing going on, not that we've ever seen that in our society. Now below the equestrians were the decurions. And these were the more local landowners. They, they'd over time built some wealth, but not to the extent of the equestrians. So senators... Equestrians, Decurians. You got that memorized? All right. Well, then below these three elite groups, you basically had everyone else. And they were sometimes referred to as the vulgus. What word does that sound like? Vulgar, right? These were the common, ragged masses. Some were free. Many were slaves. And there was little chance that anything would ever change especially for slaves who, of course, were at the very bottom. Nobody ever wanted to be a slave. And it was very difficult to ever break free from that. And where you were located on this social ladder, it dictated every part of your life. So, a few examples. Anytime you went to a public event, celebration, a marriage, church, a gladiator contest, you'd be seated based on your social status. So if you were going to a ball game at Caesar Life Field, the higher your rank, the closer you are to the field. You don't just get to splurge on dugout tickets because you feel like it. It's all based on status. Everywhere you go, you go to a wedding and the place where you sit in the ceremony or how close you sit to the bride and groom at the reception is according to your level of honor. Not a day went by you weren't reminded of this. Even what you wore was an indicator of where you were on the social order. Things like jewelry and, or the kind of toga that you wore. I used to think there was only one kind of toga. It's the one from Animal House, but no, no, no. They've got different cuts and colors and fabrics and thread counts and all, it all had to do with your status. And so if you saw someone walking by with a toga that you liked, you don't get to go to Nordstrom and buy the same toga. Clothing was about status. Aren't you glad we've moved beyond that one in our society? Where you sat, what you wore, what you drove, everything was about status. And the goal of life was to move up, to be as exalted as possible. Now the opposite of being exalted was being humbled. To be humbled meant you lose a title. 
You lose your office. It means going the wrong way down the social ladder. And this was the worst thing that could ever happen, to be humbled, stripped of your honor. Nobody would ever willingly do that. It's hard for us to understand because in our day, humility, even just the pretense of humility is appreciated. Like we want to see at least some show of humility in our leaders. Like even, even if it's humble bragging, just give us something. But in the Roman Empire, in Philippi, that simply did not exist. Humility was not a virtue. It was to be avoided at all costs. So all of this is like the backdrop to what Paul writes to his fellow Jesus followers. They're in Philippi, in this status-obsessed Roman colony with a history of narcissistic leaders who named cities after themselves where the emperor is worshipped as Lord. And here's what Paul writes to this counterculture community. Philippians 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, most people believe that what follows here in verse 6, and I think we're going to have this up on the screens, most people believe this was a hymn that was shared and sung throughout the early churches um, in this early Christian movement. And it begins with this, verse 6. Who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And some translations say grasped, leveraged for the sake of exalting himself. Jesus didn't do that, even though he was by very nature God. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very form of a servant, a slave. Question, where are slaves on the social ladder? Very bottom. Being made in human likeness, verse 8, and being in, found in, in appearance as a man, he, what, humbled himself. Wait a minute. Nobody does that. What kind of a God, what kind of king would ever willingly choose to do that? He humbled himself. He lowered himself. He gave up honor by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Question, what kinds of people were hung on a Roman cross? Bottom of the bottom, runaway slaves, insurrectionists, condemned criminals, the lowest of the low. It was a shameful thing to die on a cross. Verse 9, therefore, okay, this is the turn. This is where everything gets thrown upside down. Therefore, God exalted him. There's that word. Exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And what name is this? The name above every name? Kyrios, Lord, the one who reigns. Verse 10, that at the name of Caesar, at the name of Augustus, no, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul announces to this little community surrounded by a city that is literally built on moving up and being exalted. He says, not in here. Not in the church. Because the God who came to us in Jesus, he moved down. He knelt down. He became a slave. He washed feet. He befriended the nobodies and the left outs. He became nothing when he emptied himself on that cross. Now you go do the same. It's hard for us to appreciate just how revolutionary a word this was 
It turned everything upside down. Paul says, don't be like that world outside. It's not going to happen overnight. And you're going to have to unlearn all this stuff because it's gotten inside of you. Selfish ambition, vain conceit, taking your own interests first. We're all guilty of this. I know I am. The way that I see people, size them up and make assumptions based on their appearance or their title or the way we play favorites to certain kinds of people. Even our kids are picking this up at such a young age. Our daughter, Collier Jane, turned five this week, and um, I was just reminiscing on uh, when she was born. Uh, when Allie got pregnant, we, didn't want to, we wanted to be surprised. Was it a boy or a girl? And, um, and so we couldn't tell the twins, her older brother and sister, whether it was a boy or a girl. But the day came when Collier Jane was born, and we were over at the hospital at Presbyterian, my Aunt Faye um, was watching over the twins when we got the news, and, and we told her that it was a girl, and she ran into the room where the twins were, and she said to Wheeler and Annie, she said, kids, it's a girl. You're going to have a little sister. Aren't you excited about that? Now, one of my children, and I'm not going to tell you which one, because <laughs> I don't want to throw them under the bus, but the child that we have that's a boy... Um, <laughs> The first words out of his mouth when Faye shares this great good news, he says, take her back. I don't want a sister. I want a little baby brother. Just take her back. Right? We all do this. We play favorites. We exalt certain kinds of people or certain genders or we treat people differently based on where we think they are on that social ladder. Later in the New Testament, the writer James just goes for the jugular on this. He sees all this favoritism making its way into the ecclesia, the church, and he says, folks, it's got to stop. We cannot do that. When you walk through those doors into this place, it's got to stop. Because if we do that in here, it's going to be the end of us. And we'll be no different than anybody or anything out there in that world. So how about us? How are we doing with this? How's the American church doing with this. The writer Becky Pippert uh, tells a story about this church that she visited in Portland. It's a real formal church. All the men wore suits, very traditional. Well, one day there was a college student who uh, came in. He was coming in late. He had ripped jeans and a, you know, big messed up t-shirt on. He walks in late, and so he couldn't find a seat. And so instead of uh, sitting in the back or just standing in the back, which is the thing that most people do when they come in late. He didn't know those rules. And so he just walked all the way up to the front, couldn't find a seat. And so he parked himself right there on the stone floor at the front of the church. Well, the pastor didn't really know what to do about this. Because pastors don't, often don't know what to do when they're throwing a curveball. Everyone's kind of tense in the moment. And they're all trying to figure it out. Some people were angry. Some people felt like the worship service had been ruined by this college student. Well, finally, there was an older man in the congregation. He was one of the most traditionally minded men in that church. And he got up and he marched down to the front of the sanctuary. And everybody knew what was about to happen. That man was going to give that college boy a talking to. For not dressing up for church or for coming in late or for sitting in the wrong place. Instead, this older man with great difficulty slowly knelt down and sat down on that stone floor next to this college kid, and he spent the rest of the service sitting right there 
next to this college student. Now, however you feel about dressing up for church, I for one think it's great. Sunday best, go for it. Honor God in that way. Or however you may feel about being on time to church, I definitely think that's a good one. But can we all agree that the most important thing is the fact that that man knelt down and welcomed this college student the way, I don't know, Jesus might have done if he was in that church? Plus, don't you think that that would be kind of cool to be that man? I mean, at bare minimum, sitting on the floor would, you know, help you stay awake during the entire sermon. Paul says, don't be like the culture around you. Not in here. In Jesus, to move up is to kneel down, to humble yourself, to choose to serve and to identify and to get on level with those that don't seem to fit in, with the poor and the marginalized and the hurting. One more illustration of this. Happened recently, uh, there is a guy in our church who pitches for the L.A. Dodgers. And he is arguably the greatest pitcher in a generation and many of you know this, uh, Clayton Kershaw was, uh, was honored recently by being named the starting pitcher at the All-Star Game a couple weeks ago in Los Angeles. Just a huge honor. And he pitched one inning and he even picked off a guy at first base, which was awesome. I'm sure some of you watched this. Well, as great as that All-Star Game was, the best moment of the All-Star Game actually happened after the All-Star Game when Kershaw was being interviewed. And I mean, this was such an exalted moment. This was his moment. He's up on the podium. He's being honored like greatest pitcher in a lifetime. And all the attention, the accolades, the pictures, the, the reporters, this was his night. Well, somehow in the mix of all this and all the reporters, there was a little boy who came into the room. And he came up and he got a chance to speak to Clayton Kershaw. And you might have seen this. This little boy said, I'm here because my granddad loved you. And he loved the Dodgers. And his dream was to someday meet you. But then he got brain cancer. And then this little boy broke down and he couldn't get the words out. And he's kind of embarrassed around all these people and millions of people who are watching. And he just sort of slunk down. And Clayton Kershaw, I mean, this was his moment. But he got all choked up. And he just instinctively gets up off the podium where he's the guy that's being exalted and he comes down and he just, he walks down and he gives this kid, he gets on his level and he gives this kid a big hug and he says, I'm so proud of you. And your granddad must be so proud of you and you are such an awesome boy. And I love that picture. That he didn't stay high and exalted and like his night, his chance to be celebrated, he was willing to come down. And I dare you to watch that on YouTube without getting choked up. But it's this little glimpse this is who we are as Jesus followers. We don't stay up. We come down. We move down. We kneel down. And it's not about us and it's not about the accolades. And we just love and heal and serve. God didn't stay up high, ruling over and judging over and staying at a distance. He came down into this moving up, rising up, dressing up and climbing up and sizing everybody else up against your self-world. And he chooses humility. And he chooses obscurity, and he kneels down, and he washes feet, and he sheds blood for you and me. That's our God. From the beginning of creation to the end of times, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit pouring themselves out in selfless love for one another and for you and me.
Let's pray. Father God, you invite us into one of those thin places in Scripture with Philippians 2. And I pray that as we reflect on and take these words, that we wouldn't just be hearers, but we would be doers, and we would follow the example, and that you would give us as a gift of grace the very mindset of Christ Jesus in this moment as we worship together, as we pray together, as we become that community in the image of Jesus. Amen.